Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. This is The Takeout. This week we're going to talk about a book, a career, and something near and dear to my heart. The essence of good journalism. The book, Collision of Power. Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. The career is... Marty Barron's career, and of course, the intersection for the two of us is lifetimes spent in journalism. Marty, it's great to have you via Zoom. Congratulations on the book. Look forward to having our conversation. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, folks, if you are familiar with this show at all, you know that The Takeout has a pretty stalwart relationship with The Washington Post, past and present. We had a long conversation several years ago with... Dorothy Butler Gilliam, a well-regarded journalist, the first African-American journalist at the Washington Post. Carl Bernstein has been on this show. I don't need to say anything about Carl Bernstein, his relationship to the Washington Post. Ben Terrace has been on this show. Craig Whitlock, Karen Atiyah, Glenn Kessler, and Jason Rezaian. All have flowed through or continue to flow through the Washington Post. Several of them intersect with Marty Barron. So we admire the Post. We take their work seriously because it is serious and solid work. Marty, what is the essence of the role the Washington Post plays and played under your leadership in the nation's capital? 
Uh, I think our primary role is to uh, keep watch over uh, people in government, uh, people in politics. Uh, they have an enormous influence on the lives of ordinary people. And uh, perhaps the highest purpose of journalism is to hold uh, powerful individuals and institutions to account. Uh, and that is a role that has traditionally been played by the Post and one that I wanted to continue when I was its top editor. And the, as you well know, Marty, reflexive criticism of the media in general is that accountability journalism is more aggressive when Republicans are in charge than when Democrats are in charge. Yeah, obviously, I've heard that criticism. But the reality is that, uh, you know, the Post was pretty tough on uh, Obama as well. I mean, when they rolled out the Affordable Care Act, uh, it was a total fiasco. Uh, the Washington Post was very aggressive in the coverage of that. Uh, and very much resented by people in the Obama administration. And for the final two years of that administration, uh, we requested, for example, interviews with him. Um, and we were denied that over and over again uh, because they were concerned about the kind of penetrating questions that the Washington Post would ask. Ladies and gentlemen, just to uh, refresh your memory about Marty Barron. Uh, he worked at the Miami Herald, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, went back to the Miami Herald. He was editor there during Elian Gonzalez, a complex cultural, economic, and diplomatic story. He was there for the recount of 2000, a grueling story that went on for weeks in which the fate of American democracy and the presidency itself was hung in the balance. At the Boston Globe, if you know the movie Spotlight, you know of his role in guiding that newspaper's Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of a very difficult story to get out in the city of Boston, not just sexual abuse, but the cover-up behind it, and then at the Washington Post, under his leadership, Pulitzer Prize is across the board for, among other things, food stamps, National Security Agency misdeeds or alleged misdeeds, 2016 campaign, Trump charities, and the like. Marty, do you take credit for those Pulitzer Prizes, or do you think that is principally the work of the reporters who did it? Well, uh, newsrooms, as you know, are collective enterprises. Uh, we all work together. Uh, some of the ideas originate with the reporters, and other times ideas originate with the editors. Uh, and we work together on that. So in some of those instances, uh, I initiated those uh, those stories, but in other instances, they started with the, with the reporters themselves. And in fact, in most instances, they start with reporters themselves. They are the closest there to what's happening on the ground. Uh, they are the beat reporters. They are talking to people outside of the office. Um, and generally, they are the source for the story ideas. For those who don't know what a hierarchical relationship is within a newsroom, what is the most important role for an editor in bringing stories like that across the finish line? Well, first of all, I think it's really important for editors to see patterns in the coverage that perhaps reporters who are most directly involved don't see. So if there's some sort of systemic problem, then uh, it's possible that an editor will ask that question of whether these individual stories might be symptomatic of something uh, that's a bigger problem, a deeper problem. Uh, that is, for example, what my role was in the our investigation of the Secret Service. We had a number of stories about mishaps in the Secret Service, and I asked our reporter, terrific reporter, Carol Lennig, uh, whether that was emblematic of a systemic problem. She then came forward and said she had heard of uh, additional problems, and so we assigned her to work on that full-time. 
and she won a Pulitzer for that coverage, which showed real real problems within the Secret Service. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, we're sort of editors are also the quality control. Uh, we're supposed to ask the tough questions of reporters before publication so that um, those questions aren't asked after publication. Um, that's what we do is act as the proxy for the most critical readers we have. Um, and, and of course, also to inspire ideas at the, at, at, the, at the origin of those stories as well. And for those who don't know, any large news organization also has a team of lawyers they run rough, and rough shot's too strong a word. I apologize for that. But they are integral to understanding what the libel laws are, what the what the underlying reporting is, the solidity of that reporting. And you work with them as well, right, Marty? Yeah, of course. And it's not only a defensive posture they they take, obviously, to protect us from potential uh, libel suits and the like, uh, but also on the sort of the offense, really, because there are a lot of government officials these days, particularly at the local uh, and state level, who are keeping information from the public, even though that information under law should be public. And so they're denying that access to that information. And it's really important that we go to court uh, to make sure that the laws are actually enforced and that that information uh, that the public is entitled to know uh, that they that we have access to that and that we can uh, report on it. Marty, explain to my audience the role of confidential sources and your attitude about preservation of that confidentiality. Uh, sure. Well, uh, it's uh, obviously we would prefer, uh, greatly prefer to have people always be on the record. You always want that. Uh, and of course, many people are willing to go on the record. But in the current environment where people are receiving threats, uh, particularly people who work in government and certainly during the Trump administration, where if people spoke openly, uh, they were going to be fired, uh, they would be threatened, uh, they would be targeted by allies of the president for both uh, verbal and physical threats, um, uh, and their lives and the lives of family members would be deeply damaged by uh, disclosure of their names. Even in, during the Trump administration, even people who went through the normal uh, permitted process uh, who actually were subpoenaed to testify before Congress and then did honor that subpoena and did testify, they themselves came in for attacks from the president and his allies. And so one can understand why uh, people simply don't want to have their names used. And and at, at, unfortunately, sometimes that's the only way that we in the press can obtain information. And one thing I think sometimes people who are critics of the news media misunderstand is that confidentiality is not conferred easily, number one. Number two, whatever is transmitted via confidential source has to be confirmed several ways. We just don't take handouts and grant anonymity as a part of our daily work. Yeah, and sometimes the public thinks that because uh, people in granite anonymity, that means we don't know who they are. Right. But we, we <laughs> A common misunderstanding, who, right. Right, we do know who they are. And during the Trump administration, of course, in many instances, for example, when there were really sensitive leaks, uh, Trump would say that uh, these sources don't exist. And then at the same time, he would say they were launching an investigation to discover the source of the leaks. Those are inconsistent positions. You can't both argue that the sources don't exist, but at the same time, we're, say that we're launching an investigation to find out who those sources are. Uh, those are clearly inconsistent. So we do know who they are. Um, we grant anonymity reluctantly, uh, but 
frequently, particularly in Washington, it's a necessity. It's also a necessity in a lot of companies as well, mm -hmm. because people would be people can't become whistleblowers um, by having their names out there. And uh, some do, but some don't. Many don't. That's the voice of Marty Barron. The book title is Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one second. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Takeout. Marty Barron is our special guest. He is living the life of an author right now, but for all most of his career, he was not only a formidable, but a Pulitzer Prize winning editor of numerous organizations, most recently the Washington Post, where he was editor from, if I have my dates right, Marty, December 2012 to February 2021. Um, one thing that you are well known in journalistic circles for saying early on in the Trump administration is the quote, which I will read as follows. We are not at war with the administration. We are at work. What did you mean by that? And does that still hold the same relevance to you in the post that it did when you first said it? Yes, I still believe that. And here's what I meant by that. Uh, I think we have to think back to uh, why we have an independent and free press in this country and think back to the origin of the First Amendment. Uh, the principal author of that amendment was James Madison. At the time, he talked about freely examining public characters and measures. So let's think through that. Uh, free, we understand. Examining means that we are not just stenographers. We are actually reporters. We are journalists. That means we want to know who is responsible, who is going to be affected, who influenced decisions, uh, all of that. Uh, the um, characters and measures, public characters, means uh, the politicians, government officials, the powerful individuals and institutions who influence them. Uh, and the measures, of course, are the policies. So that was the first assignment that the and free and independent press received in this country, and it remains our assignment. So that is not a war. That is our work. And it was regarded at the time as a kind of, not bumper sticker, but a philosophical guide for reporters. And I brought it very close to my heart covering the Trump White House at the time because there was a tremendous amount of emotion about covering the Trump White House. And there were media critics who were saying that the press was normalizing things that were abnormal with Trump and were not as aggressive or critical or aggravated enough in the public space about what it was before it on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Jay Rosen often wrote about this, what he considered to be problem with the Washington-based press corps and its orientation to the Trump White House or Trump rhetoric. And I'd like you to explain to my audience the philosophical imperative not only of saying we are at work, but avoiding the temptation of emotionalism, whether it's Trump or anyone else in the public space. Sure. I understand the temptation to think that uh, we're at war, especially when the president of the United States says that he is at war with us. And that is what he said on his very first full day in office. Uh, He went to the CIA headquarters. He was talking to them, uh, standing in front of a memorial for fallen fallen CIA agents. And what did he choose to talk about? The media. Uh, And he said, we are, as you know, I am at war with the media, which suggested that he wanted to enlist uh, CIA agents who worked for him in his war against the media. Uh, but my view is that, um, you know, he may think he's at war with us and he is at war with us, uh, but we shouldn't take that posture because, look, just doing our work is what we're all about. Uh, I, I think, you know, Steve Bannon early in the administration said that he described the press as the opposition party. He wants us to behave like the opposition party. We shouldn't uh, we shouldn't oblige him. Uh, we shouldn't be the opposition party. And we don't have to be the opposition party because um, we're supposed to hold government officials accountable. That was the idea behind the First Amendment, uh, the I- original idea behind a free and independent press. And that's what we should do. And we should think about it in a professional manner that this is our task, that this is not a war. If we think it's a war, uh, we will behave in a very different in a very different way. And it will not be professional. Uh, it will be what exactly what Steve Bannon uh, described us as, as the opposition party. And the public will see it that way. That way. So we have to maintain our independence and uh, just go about our work, uh, which, look, has accomplished a lot. Powerful journalism has accomplished a lot over time. Uh, and um, you take a look at, for example, the work that uh, The Washington Post did, did during Watergate. Uh, you look at the work that the New York Times did with the Pentagon Papers. I think of the work that we did at the Boston Globe in covering and uh, in, in, in disclosing a, a, a half half century cover up by the Catholic Church of sexual abuse within within the church. Uh, all of those accomplished an enormous amount. That was just work. Uh, and so I think we should remember that we don't need to resort to war and shouldn't resort to war in order to uh, fulfill our mission as journalists. I want to latch on to one of the things you just said there, Marty, which is over time. Uh, I have a phrase. It's not nearly as famous as your phrase, but it goes like this. Credible journalism will always outlast incredible politicians. But it takes time. It takes time for the credibility of that journalism to be reinforced, to be appreciated, and to stand the test of time, where rhetoric of politicians, particularly aggressively critical rhetoric of politicians, if the journalism is solid, will eventually run out of time. I totally agree with that. Uh, Look, um, think back to Watergate. Uh, Richard Nixon and his first vice president, Spiro Agnew, uh, were targeting the press, claiming that all of the work of the Washington Post and other media outlets was partisan in nature. It turned out that the work of the Washington Post and these other media organizations uh, was validated over time. 
Uh, and the the public trust and the media actually rose after Watergate. It didn't decline. It was at its highest, le- the highest level that we can remember, I think, in our lifetimes. And so uh, and that's because that work proved to be true. Uh, I think some, it may take more time these days than it did in the past for a variety of reasons. But uh, I think over time, the work will be validated. And uh, that's what you should think about that long term as opposed to expecting that our our reporting will have instant results. And yet, Marty, you know that there is a crisis of confidence about journalism in this country. There is a embittered and sort of default mistrust of what we do and how we do it and its efficacy day to day in American life. Is that a solvable problem near term? Well, I don't know about near term, but it's something that we should start working on near term. uh, I think that we have to do a variety of things. Uh, one is that um, I think we have to cover all corners of our society, all communities, all people, people with different ideologies, people with different lives. The reality is that there are a lot of people in this country who are struggling, tremendous number of people who are struggling. Their communities have lost industries. They've lost jobs. Uh, they're working at jobs that pay less than they did before. There aren't opportunities for their kids. Um, I understand the level of grievance that people have in this country and the feeling that perhaps they're held in contempt by the so-called elites in this country. I understand that uh, they feel condescended to. I I understand they feel that they haven't been hurt. Uh, And I think it's important for us to demonstrate that we are, in fact, listening uh, to them, that we are fully reflecting their lives in our in our coverage. And that means people in all communities, all communities. Uh, But I also think and I also think that we need to show show our work more. Uh, We need to be more transparent about how we uh, how we obtain the information that we did. What is it based on? I think we should go in with the assumption that people aren't going to believe any word that we write or publish. And so now with the Internet, of course, we have the opportunity to show people what we based our work on. If we're writing about a court case, let's show the let's show the court ruling, the judge's ruling. Let's show the the um, deposition that we're basing this on. Let's annotate it to show people where we got that language. Let's point people to government databases. Let's point to the video that actually shows what we are talking about or the audio that shows that what we're talking about. There are many opportunities for us to, I mean, essentially footnote our entire our entire coverage. And I think that we should be much more energetic in 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 doing that showing the public and saying, look, you don't believe me? Here, read it for yourself. We have about a minute left, and we'll carry this into the next conversation on the other side of the break, Marty. But talk to my audience about the struggle within the Post about the word lie. Uh, sure. Um, well, look, I think uh, major media organizations initially are very careful with the language that they use. Um, it's not a word that we had customarily used to describe uh, a president of the United States. I think we should be careful. You can never take those words back once you've used them. Um, and of course, at the beginning, we just didn't know uh, whether Trump knew that what he was saying was untrue. Many times he actually is uh, deluding himself into thinking that what he's saying is true. And many times uh, he is just, he doesn't even care whether it's true or not. I mean, he does, it's not as if he, he never even, he wouldn't even bother to look it up uh, if, he, if he had the energy to do so. Uh, and so he just, he just, uh, you know, extemporaneously just says whatever serves his his purpose. So we waited to use that word until we could actually document that he knew that what he was saying was false. Uh, And that's when we started to use it. And then, of course, there have been many occasions since then where we could um, we could document that. Many cases, indeed. That's the voice of Marty Baron, the book Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos and The Washington Post. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one second. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. Marty Barron is our guest. The book again, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. Uh... Language matters, as you well know, Marty. Precision matters. Two other words I want to get your interpretation of and how you wrestled with the terms when you were at the Post. Racist and insurrection. Uh, well, um, with regard to uh, racist, uh, you know, we actually used that word very shortly after Trump said that um, uh, people in the so-called squad uh, in the House, uh, that they should go back to the countries where they came from. Um, we didn't use it the first day. Um, that just wasn't it wasn't our custom to just throw those kinds of words around. I mean, we're not going to throw around words like racist, misogynist, sexist, all of those kinds of things, right and left, uh, homophobic. You know, there are plenty of labels that one could use all the time. Uh, but we thought about it uh, this, the, the next day. Uh, we had a group that came to the conclusion that the language that he was using was, in fact, racist. Um, and we don't use we weren't using it every day. But in that circumstance, we felt that it was justified. So we're careful with it, but we're not averse to using that word when it seems justified. Uh, with regard to insurrection, uh, it was clear uh, that what happened on January 6th was an effort to overturn the results of the election. Uh, that was clearly its purpose. Uh, it was, I mean, that's that's what brought people to watch a lot of the people to Washington, not everybody, but a lot of people to Washington. And that's what caused them to barge. In, I mean, just barge into the into the Capitol and beat up uh, police officers and talk about hanging the vice president of the United States. Uh, that is the definition of an insurrection. And so uh, we had no hesitation in using that word. There's something that you write about in the book that I was delighted to see. It's something that I have been frustrated with as far as the industry goes, which is replacing the word journalism with what is regarded by some industry leaders as a synonym, content. They are not the same. I know why they're not the same, but I would like you to explain to my audience why they are so fundamentally different and that the difference matters. Sure. Um, look, I think we we talked earlier about the difference between uh, stenography and journalism, right? So, um, and uh, I think we need to understand what journalism is. Content can meet, has no meaning whatsoever. It just means stuff that you're just putting up on the web or you're putting on the air or anything like that. It's just and I, I often joked that we should just substitute the word stuff for it because it is exactly as meaningless as the word stuff. Uh, so it really annoyed me that we that people were actually avoiding the word journalism uh, for a long period of time. It was, to me, stunning and dismaying. Um, 
So journalism is going deeper. Uh, we want to know uh, who is responsible for things that happen. We want to know who is affected by uh, those policies. We would like to know who influenced those policies. Those are the kinds of things that we that we are looking for. It, it calls for us going deeper. Uh, examining is what, what you know. James Madison used the word examining, really looking deeper uh, behind the curtain and underneath and underneath the surface. Uh, that is journalism, and that is not just content. Content could mean anything, uh, and it's actually generally means nothing at all. There's also something you talk about in the book, and I'll get to Jeff Bezos in just a second. But the lack of utility of an ombudsman for a newspaper. Uh, lots of newspapers had them. They were kind of the rage in the 90s and the early 2000s. What's wrong with them? And how does they, do they not forward what you talked about earlier, which is this idea of transparency and showing collectively our work? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I have a, just a, an aversion to the idea that only one person uh, should pronounce on, uh, on the quality of the work that we did. Uh, the reality is that in a newsroom, there's a, as I mentioned before, it's a collective enterprise. We all work together. Uh, a lot of people are involved in these decisions. To say that there's one person um, who's been named to be both uh, investigator, uh, judge, jury, all of that, and they somehow, this one individual somehow has judgment superior to everybody else. Um, and well, I don't think the evidence actually shows that that individual necessarily has judged. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, just like everybody else. So to pronounce this person as being like a high priest of journalism who's going to pronounce on what's quality and what's not quality, I, I find that just strange. Um, and and by the way, we have plenty of critics. So in the time of the internet, you know, they're we have plenty of critics. We have ombudsmen all over the place. Yes. Uh, many, there, there's no shortage of press critics. Uh, and so there's no, people can evaluate our work. And uh, I do think we should be transparent about our work. I do think that we should respond to uh, our critics uh, when there are uh, justifiable uh, complaints, which there are. I mean, I think we do need to recognize that we make mistakes. Uh, the reason that we make mistakes is because we're human uh, and all humans make mistakes. So we're no we're not perfect, nor is anybody in any other profession perfect. So uh, we should acknowledge that we should admit that we should go about our work with humility. Um, but to say that one person is going to be investigator, judge and jury, uh, I I just don't think that makes any sense. Many in my audience think they know something about Jeff Bezos. What do they most need to know about Jeff Bezos and his role at the Washington Post? Well, it's something that I, uh, I've i said all throughout my time at the at the Post which, um, and during his, uh, his tenure, which was uh, more than seven years of my time at the Post. Um, and that is that he did not interfere in our, our news coverage in any way. He didn't seek to influence it. He didn't uh, he didn't suggest stories. He didn't suppress stories. He didn't critique stories. He didn't he didn't do anything of that sort. Uh, and he gave us our independence and he stood behind us at a time when he himself came under enormous pressure from uh, the president of the United States who sought to sabotage uh his business, primary business, Amazon, and obviously the source of Jeff Bezos's, Bezos's enormous wealth. Um, and um, but he stood by us. I know I can think of a lot of business people who would not have done that uh, when you have the most powerful person in the world, the president of the United States, uh, attacking them daily, uh, demonizing them and seeking to uh, torpedo 
uh, their their business. And that's part of the collision. Every editor of the Washington Post collides with every president of the United States, full stop. But this was a collision of a different dimension. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was. First of all, you had the Washington Post, which had a uh, legendary newspaper, which had played a uh, mighty role in the fall of a previous president, Richard Nixon, um, and saw it's, it's and is the preeminent news organization in in Washington. And uh, that, um, and then you had it. It was acquired by one of the richest people in the world. Um, uh, and and then you had Trump, a, a initially a candidate, a presidential candidate, unlike any we'd ever seen before and then a president unlike any we'd ever seen before. Uh, and Trump was uh, first attacking the Washington Post, and because he couldn't influence our coverage, uh, he started to attack our owner, uh, thinking that that was his route to changing the nature of the coverage. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, Bezos stood up to him, uh, didn't bend, didn't break, um, and I'm grateful for for that, for sure. And when Jeff took over the post, there was a lot of sense in Washington that the post had been managing its economic decline for several years before he arrived. He clearly infused the post with money, but he did not, from the book's orientation to Jeff, spend recklessly. He was a taskmaster. He was someone who encouraged you to innovate, but he wasn't tolerant of waste. True? Yeah, totally true. He was. He didn't treat us like a charity. Uh, we were not his charity. Um and I'm, you know, glad uh, he didn't uh, because uh, we needed to use the opportunity of his ownership to create a sustainable business model. Uh, I mean, if he treated us like a charity and then someday decided he was not no longer interested in that charity, uh, we would we would have been in deep in deep trouble. So um, uh, but he felt that we needed the discipline resulted in greater creativity, that we needed to figure out how to allocate our resources the, the best way possible. Um, and he didn't spend uh uh, recklessly in any way. Uh, he was willing to invest for the long term, and I think he still is, uh, but um, but he did not treat us like a charity, and, um, and I don't think he ever will treat uh, the Post like one. And the sin of boringness was not acceptable. Right. Uh, it was one of the first things that he said, uh, don't be boring. Uh, and I agree with that. Uh, I, it was certainly not a boring period for uh, for the media uh, with Trump's arrival on the scene. So we didn't have that many problems with that. But but uh, we covered a lot of other things as well. And the issue is, how do we make uh, how do we cover the news so that we make it engaging to the general public? And uh, we worked hard on that. That is the voice of Marty Baron. Again, the book Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos and the Washington Post segment for the takeout coming your way in just one moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to The Takeout, continuing our conversation with Marty Barron. Marty, at this stage of your career, would you say the Trump years were exhausting or exhilarating? Hmm. Um, well, I guess a bit of both. Uh, so uh, they were exhilarating in the sense that it was really a call to duty on the for the press uh, to do our job. I think we faced challenges unlike any we'd ever uh, faced before. A president who was constantly attacking us, who described us as scum, garbage, uh, the lowest form of humanity, and then the lowest form of life itself, and then called us the enemy of the people and suggesting that just merely the practice of our profession was uh, an act of treason. Uh, so we had really never faced that sort of attack. And it wasn't just an occasional attack, it was a constant attack. So. It was both a call to duty, uh, but dealing with that all of the time and the and the threats that it stimulated in the general public, I think were uh, was was exhausting. Uh, we were constantly uh, under attack, not just from Trump, but from a lot of his allies. And our our journalists uh, faced threats, both verbal threats and physical threats, um, which Trump himself in, essentially encouraged uh, with the language language that he was using and by individually demonizing uh, particular journalists. So uh, it was exhausting in that way. And plus, there was no really no rest with him. I mean, it's not like uh, you felt that at any hour of the day you could take the you could you could take off, you know, you could go to dinner or something like that, because at 11 o'clock at night or midnight, he would say something or do something that could be really quite dramatic. And, uh, you know, people at times complained that, well, we're covering these things, these tweets, but the tweets were actually an indication of what his policy would be. He was quite open about it. And um, it's one of the things about Trump and in and, and many instances, and maybe in most instances, he's totally open about what he intends to do. And uh, and we should pay attention to that. I often told people uh, that I, covering the White House, there was one part of covering the Trump White House that was different than every other presidency I'd covered, which for every other presidency I'd covered, there was this need to try to pull back the curtain and get to what the president was really thinking. That was not a problem with the Trump White House. You knew exactly what he was thinking the moment he thought it. And that was part of this ever-turning gyration of activity at all hours of every day, as you mentioned, Marty. You lived through it. I lived through it. Anyone who covered that White House or covered Congress that was receiving whatever the president was thinking or doing, felt it as well. I want to go back to the Boston Globe and Spotlight and that story. What was the hardest part of that story in terms of developing it, reporting it to ground, and then realizing what you had and what you were going to be up against? Well, very early on we in the reporting, we, um, uh, we were able to determine that there were actually quite a quite a large number of priests who had been incredibly accused of abuse. Um, but what we really needed to show, and we could have gone straight with that story, uh, but I decided that we should hold back because there was a bigger story that we really needed to document. And that was, well, what did the church do when it became aware of that abuse? Um, it had an institutional responsibility to protect the children's children in its care. Uh, and so here it was here, uh, it was receiving reports of uh, credible reports of um, abuse by priests. In fact, with some priests on multiple occasions, so one priest was accused of abusing as many as 80 kids over a long period of time and was uh, transferred from one parish to the next. So the question is, was not just is there a large is there a large number of are there a large number of priests who were uh, credibly accused of abuse, or but really the bigger story is, well, what did this institution uh, do about it, and uh, who 
and who was responsible for its its policies and its practices. And uh, so that's what we were aiming for. That was the more challenging story. Uh, and ultimately, we were able to document that because we went to court uh, to obtain documents, internal documents of the Archdiocese of Boston that had been kept confidential, uh, that the church itself had requested remain confidential. And uh, we argued that these should be released. And thankfully, uh, a judge agreed with us. Talk to my audience about the other word that applies in that story, collision, because you're colliding up against not just a global institution of power and renown, but within Boston, among the most influential power structures the city has ever known. Yeah, well, at the time, I think it was the most powerful institution in all of in all of New England. I would say it's not today, but uh, it was it was then. And people asked me, have asked me if on frequently actually uh, whether I wasn't concerned, you know, about the the power of the institution and all of that. And my answer is totally honest, which is, well, that's when we have a greater obligation to investigate. The greater the power of the institution, the greater the opportunity to uh, commit abuse, and the greater the opportunity to cover up that uh, abuse of power. And so the press has an obligation not to just go after the small fry out there, uh, but to actually go after the big institutions and the most powerful individuals and the most powerful institutions. And so... um, so that's what really what we ought to be doing. Um, and so I wasn't concerned about that. I felt that it was our duty. Did you ever encounter pressure not to? Well, the court, the church went to court uh, to try to seek penalties against us for even interviewing priests. It argued that uh, we should be prohibited from doing so. Uh, it argued that we were violating the terms of a confidentiality order in the court. Uh, it was a r- ridiculous claim. Uh, but... Um, they tried to they tried to suppress it and to threaten us, uh, but you know we uh, we didn't submit to that. How hard was that decision, Marty, within the newsroom and with your team to not do the first story, but wait until you had the second story, which was the cover up and the institutional disregard for what the church was by any definition required to do, which was care for the children and not allow this to persist. Well, I think it was hard simply because it's a competitive environment. Um, it's uh, I'm not sure I would make the same decision today with the Internet uh, in terms of the importance of the Internet and social media. So we really didn't have social media at the time. You know, Facebook was uh, basically was founded in the mid 2000s, 2007, I think it was. Um, and so um, uh, but. Yeah, and people want to go with the story they have here. You have evidence of uh, lots of priests who have committed abuse. But I was concerned that that would be uh, it would be a numbers game. Uh, it wasn't the first time that we knew of priests who had committed abuse. So that had been reported before. There have been books written about that. The really the more so how to what extent were we really contributing to public knowledge? I felt that the more important story was uh, to what extent did the church actually do anything, uh, or did it in fact enable um, continuing abuse on the part of priests? And the answer is that it covered up. Uh, solely to protect the reputation of the church, thereby enabling further abuse uh, of priests. In the moment when those stories were published, did you encounter people who thought you were biased against the Catholic Church reflexively? You know, we were worried about that. Uh, We were concerned that that would be the reaction, and we actually uh, alerted our switchboard. We had switchboards in those days, uh, you may remember. (laughs) I do, I do. Uh, you know, it seems so long ago now, but uh, it's not that long ago. Uh, we alerted them that uh, people would be calling in and complaining. 
but the reality is that because we have those church documents, because we put those church those documents in the paper and on the internet so that people could read them for themselves, uh, uh, they could see there was a sense of betrayal, but it wasn't betrayal by the by the Boston Globe. It was betrayal by the church. They felt betrayed, and the most devout members of the church felt betrayed uh, because they could see that the the cardinal and other high officials within the church said that uh, priests would certain priests would be taken out of ministry, and they weren't. They were just reassigned to another parish where nobody would notice. That's the definition, ladies and gentlemen, of public service journalism. That's what our conversation has largely been about. Marty Barron has been our guest, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Please stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake, especially I'll see you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield... You can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com slash Wondery. For more details, see ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Our guest this week, Marty Barron, most recently the editor of The Washington Post, now author of Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Marty, as we were wrapping up the main show, you said something that I think is really important, that the Internet and social media have changed the deadline structure, changed the decision-making process in newsrooms, Walk my audience through that, because I don't think people appreciate the kind of pressures that that set of new deadlines imposes on reporters and editors. Sure. I tell people that our job is not 24-7 these days. It's 24-7 every minute, um, and there is no rest. Uh, and, and the public really expects now to receive information the instant that it occurs. Uh, and there's enormous competition among media outlets to provide that uh, information as quickly as possible. Uh, we had metrics at the Post that measured us against our primary competitors on how fast we put out alerts. And uh, the metric was by the second, uh, by the second. Uh, that is a punishing metric, metric of course. Uh, it puts an enormous amount of pressure on uh, news institutions. And you want to make sure that what you're, whatever news you're disseminating is is accurate. Uh, and to to work under that speed is just uh, brutally difficult. Um, and it's hard to verify things that quickly. Uh, but uh, that that's the environment in which we live today. And uh, of course, there's an enormous amount of competition. And there is a real tension, Marty, between that clash of immediacy and perfection. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, look, I mean, in the past, in the newspaper world, uh, which I grew up in, (laughs) right? in the newspaper world, we had maybe, you know, a morning newspaper, and sometimes people had an evening newspaper. Um, But in between editions, you had you had multiple editors who would review stories, you had hours to work on it, people would ask a lot of questions, people would ask you to go back and check one more time or two more times. Uh, And, and so there was uh, the luxury, what we now view as a luxury of time. Well, at the moment, uh, there is no luxury of time. There is no time whatsoever, really, uh, and that is a true conflict, uh, a real problem, and a real and a real challenge to those of us in the media. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, Marty. I think this is so important: sustainability of journalism. What is, to your mind, a sustainable model for journalism these days? Well, I think that's very difficult to, to answer uh, generally for the profession. I mean, obviously, we had a, have a lot of different types of media outlets and even within the uh, the field of legacy, what were newspapers in the past, but are now essentially digital uh, media outlets. Um, it differs from the national news ones, national news organizations to uh, local ones. Uh, but ultimately, we have to provide value to our readers and our viewers. To, they feel that, in fact, what we are doing every day serves their serves their needs. Uh, Our job as media outlets is to give the public the information it needs and deserves to know in order to govern themselves. And if they, and we need to think about that both at the local level and the national level, are we doing that? Are we doing that effectively uh, every single day? Um, Obviously there are an enormous number of commercial challenges uh, that uh, we face. I can't address them all here, but uh, (laughs) there are too many. Uh, but um, but I think we need to think hard about our, our mission and are we accomplishing that every day? Are we using our resources as uh, effectively as possible? And are we operating as efficiently as we possibly can? Uh, we simply have to ask that. I mean, I think it's important to remember that newspapers in the old days uh, were essentially monopolies and oligopolies. There were yep. one, two, maybe three uh, newspapers in a city long ago. Uh, but uh, and they earned many of them earned 40, 50 percent profit margins. And um uh, uh, of course, that's not the case today. Uh, many of them are struggling to make any profit whatsoever, and many aren't making any profit whatsoever. So uh, we need to be more efficient. We need to use technology uh, effectively and efficiently. Um, and we need to be honest with ourselves about the reality of our business and make some very tough decisions about what we continue to do and what we uh, don't continue to do. I'm going to lighten this up ever so slightly, Marty. I have three questions I pose to almost every guest who's ever been on the show. We're going into our eighth year. So take these questions in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie and favorite kind of music, either artist or genre? Uh, Gee. uh, (laughs) You should have warned me. Uh, (laughs) It would be no fun if I warned you. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Um, I don't know. Most influential. I'm not sure I can answer any of those questions. I, I'm a big classical music fan. Uh, okay. So I'm a little odd duck that way, but I really love classical music. Uh, and uh, I like uh, a lot of different ones. Uh, Schumann is a big favorite of mine. So um, uh, as far as influential books, uh, gee, I don't know. Many of the Philip Roth books, uh, I think, were are just tremendous. I think he... Um, 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 the plot against America. Plot comes against to America mind. comes to mind most most definitely. Most currently, so um, um, there's a sense of uh, anxiety and worry that builds throughout his his novels, and um, <laughs> it's something that I think uh, I experience almost every day these days. And of course, you can say Spotlight for favorite movie. 
Oh, yes. I forgot favorite movie. Well, Spotlight's an obvious one. So there you go. Uh, that should be a shock. That should be a shocker to you. You get full credit for that one, Marty. You can own that one for the rest of your life. Marty Barron, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for hanging out. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.